here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we are doing a deep dive where we will be looking at just two query letters in more detail. Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, your podcast is the highlight of every Thursday for me, and I truly cannot thank you enough for all you do for the writing community. I'm delighted to share the query for Between the Mountains and Manhattan, my 90,000-word contemporary rom-com with you, and would love to hear any feedback you may have. Told in a dual timeline over the course of two summers, five years apart, this novel features a nostalgic second-chance romance that will appeal to readers of Carly Fortunes every summer after with the big-city small-town dynamic of Book Lovers by Emily Henry. 
Lucy, Aspen leader, has the New York City life she always wanted, a studio apartment, a photography degree from NYU, and a wealthy socialite boyfriend. Most importantly, she's 150 miles away from the hometown she fled after her sister was diagnosed with cancer five years ago. Lucy thinks she wants nothing more than to lose herself in the skyscrapers and busy streets of the city, but after a major faux pas leaves her blacklisted from doing any work as a food photographer in the New York restaurant scene, and a disastrous breakup decimates her social circle, Lucy is forced to return to the one place that, despite her protests, still feels like home, her hometown in the Berkshires. Back in her hometown, Lucy runs into Evan Foley, the man that, for one sun-soaked summer after high school, her whole world revolved around. Until, terrified by her sister's diagnosis, Lucy left everything, including Evan, behind. As Lucy becomes more entangled in the pulsing summer life back in her hometown, she feels the same magnetic pull that drew her to Evan five summers ago. And it seems like he feels it too. But Lucy has to decide if her feelings for Evan are strong enough to keep her in the very place she once longed to get away from. If she stays in the Berkshire, she'll be just another generation staying in the same place she was born, giving up the life and career in New York she worked so hard to cultivate. But if she goes back, she could lose her family and the love of her life all over again. Growing up in Massachusetts, I spent many summers living and working in the Berkshires. I currently live in Washington, D.C., and am pursuing a master's degree in English. In contrast to the dense 17th century literature of my academic life, in my free time, I enjoy reading and writing lighthearted romance, baking, and exploring local bookstores. Thank you in advance for your time and consideration. My first five pages are pasted below. May I send you the complete manuscript? Warmly, Isabel. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, will you give us your take on the query letter? All right, so this is clocking in at around 450 words. It is a really strong query letter, clearly very polished. Let's talk about the most important part, the plot paragraph. So this query letter and the one that we're going to critique next share something in common. And it's something that's really important and that I want every single querying writer to think of, please. And that is what compels your protagonist to go on their hero's journey? That's question number one. And then question number two is, when they reach the climax, what major dramatic question is the reader on tenterhooks, right? Thinking to themselves, oh my gosh, what are they going to do? So when it comes to the first question for this query letter, I have a really good answer. Her life is in shambles. She probably has no money because she was blacklisted and she had to go back home. That is a very popular trope for a good reason. It usually works. You come from this town. You don't want to go back to this town. You have all these bad memories about this town, and yet you have to go back. And the protagonist tells themselves, it's just for a couple of months. Maybe it won't be, but they tell themselves that to get through it. So really well done. Great job. And then you have the second question. And the second question is harder to do, I think, because it's the major dramatic question which is what's at stake. And here I'm going to read from the query letter. But Lucy has to decide if her feelings for Evan are strong enough to keep her in the very place she once longed to get away from. Tricky, because why can't Evan move? Men have got to start moving for women. It is what it is. The trailing spouse, an image that always makes me think of a suitcase. The trailing spouse is usually the woman, right? Like in a heterosexual couple. Let's make the trailing spouse the dude. Let's just do that. Feels like a good thing. Evan can move. Actually, though, Evan can move. If Evan can't move, like why? Also, what is so bad about this hometown? I'm guessing it has to do with, you know, the diagnosis and her sister. And I get that. But it's just like if they're already together and this is a rom-com, I don't have a will they or won't they. So then the will she or won't she is stay or go. And I'm, I'm just not feeling the stakes like I have to feel for this to stand out in the super competitive market. Carly, what did you think? 
I agree about he can move. A couple things on that note is that 150 miles, like that really isn't that far. Like, is that just me thinking that really isn't that far? If you need to do a long distance relationship, I think they can make it work. So my notes, one thing I wanted to mention, and I couldn't figure out what this reminded me of, this query that it reminded me of, and I finally figured it out. So Kristen Higgins wrote a novel called Always the Last to Know. And that would be a really good comp for this one because there's a sick, it's a parent, but like a sick parent. And that's what brings the person kind of home. And then there's the will they or won't they between the former love of her life who she left New York City for. So a lot of this is really, that would be a really good comp for you. And the reason in that book that the man couldn't move was because he had a business there. And it was a, I think it was a carpentry business or kind of contractor type of business, which she had built, right? And you couldn't make that move to New York City. So, and in that book, the man does try to move and it doesn't work out. So he has to go home. So there, there are reasons which to Cece's point, I think are quite important. One thing is I'm not seeing where the calm is here, right? There's a lot of ROM, not a lot of calm. So I'm kind of curious about maybe this is not categorized correctly. Maybe it's just commercial fiction. I I think that's maybe something that needs to be evaluated. And I'm also really curious about the sister, right? So the sister has been diagnosed. It doesn't say that the sister died. It says that the sister is diagnosed. So I'm just not clear on... A couple things like this kind of makes her a villain like you left your sick sister behind because you couldn't deal with the fact that she was sick is there some sort of like medical trauma that this character had a reason that they didn't want to kind of be around somebody that was ill so it, it right from the jump I'm kind of like hmm I don't know how I feel about somebody that wants to run away from a sick sibling that was a little bit challenging to me and I think that overall It's quite dense in terms of the word count. So it does clock in, as we said, around that kind of 450 words. It's it's quite wordy for a book that's like somebody returning back to their small hometown. Will they or won't they? I don't know. I just felt like it was there was a lot of word count here for something that is a trope that is kind of well-worn in a good way because it's comforting. And a lot of people like this return back home feeling. It's a nostalgic feeling. The second chance romance is, is strong. So it, it felt a little bit dense. And I think we could probably trim trim some words here. Awesome, Carly. Okay, can you give our listeners an understanding of what's in those five pages? All right. So our main character is on a boat. They are, it says a fancy yacht kind of floating down the Hudson. She is photographing an event. We find out that it is for her boyfriend's work, potentially. We learn that she is a food photographer, so she's not used to photographing people. And then all of a sudden, she starts to get this feeling like he's going to propose and she starts feeling really ill. But we learn that she grew up near water and she's used to being on boats. So she's not ill from the actual movement in terms of seasickness. No, she thinks she's going to be sick because he's going to propose. And so it starts kind of coming true that he's starting to to propose and he does and then she physically throws herself off the boat and that is where we end i love that it's nice being surprised in those in those opening pages okay cc what was your take on them i was definitely surprised that she jumped and i loved that i am a big fan of, of surprises as everyone probably knows so i have two big picture notes um one of them is this book starts with i'm trapped on a sleek boozy yacht floating lazily down the Hudson when I realized that Theo was about to pop the question. So we're in the present tense, which I love. Big fan of the immediacy of the present tense. And then from the first line, we know that she is convinced he's going to pop the question. Normally, I'm not a fan of her being right because there's no surprise, but one, she doesn't want it. So yes, I'm a fan. Two, there's the surprise of the jumping. So it works. 
But we do have paragraphs and paragraphs where they're doing other thing. And then she returns to the interiority of, and that's when I realized he was going to pop the question. So that to me doesn't work. That calibration doesn't work. So either thread the knowing and the dreading throughout, throughout the interaction with the obnoxious friend, et cetera, or remove it from the first line. I actually think the second option is better just because I think that the interaction is already kind of fun enough, but obviously totally up to you. My second big picture note is the query letter tells me that she has the life she always wanted. And that includes the boyfriend, but she doesn't want the boyfriend to propose to her. And that's okay, because you don't have to want to get married with someone to be in a happy relationship, right? But I need to know why not. There's like three or four mentions of this dread she's feeling about the proposal, but no information on why. Is this a Rory and Logan situation? I'm referring, of course, to the last season of Gilmore Girls, where Logan proposed to Rory, and she wanted to continue dating him. She loved him. She just wasn't ready for marriage. Is that what we're talking about? Because that's totally different from... I don't know what other explanation there might be. So we need a little bit more information on that. Not necessarily it all spelled out. I also don't want that. But clues, clues about the maybe something like maybe the reason is his family. So then we can get clues on I'd have to deal with his family or I'd have to tell my parents. Maybe the issue is that she doesn't want to tell her parents. Maybe the issue is that she would have to go to court to get married, like, if you know, or, or some other place that's official. And that would mean telling him her real name, dun, dun, dun. probably not, it's a rom-com, but like whatever the issue, I need clues on on the reason, right? Because it's a big deal not to want someone to to get married, not to want to get married to someone you're dating. And it's it's something that made me really curious. And then as a minor, minor note, she splashes into the water, right? And then just starts swimming. There's a line that says, everything is quiet. And for a moment, I can pretend I'm in Massachusetts swimming out to the dock. I don't believe that it would be quiet. I think people would be yelling out her name. Like, especially whoever is like in charge of the boat. If you have someone in the water, there are like legal implications to that. That, that to me needs a little bit of tweaking. Even if it's just my mind tuned out, people calling my name, it could be as simple as that. But yeah, these were really strong pages. Or perhaps being so submerged underwater that it's quiet, that you can't hear people calling. Yeah, Carly? I was going to say, so on the Hudson, there's people like jet skiing and there's boats. Like that would be incredibly unsafe to jump into the Hudson and then swim back to shore. Like how bad is this proposal and how much does this man suck that you literally want to physically jump off a boat and swim through the Hudson to like make it to shore to get away from it? It was so dramatic and surprising that, I don't know, I just was so shocked by it. I couldn't believe that somebody would actually do that. And, you know, when I said, like, where's the calm in this ROM? Like, maybe I found the calm. And that's the kind of vibe that we're going to be getting. And so that's funny, I guess, if that if that is where the humor is coming from. I think that's really funny. I think the most interesting thing about this about these pages is how out of sync this couple is. On the first page, there's a mention of like him. She wishes that he had a flask in his pocket. That's what she thought was the bulge in the jacket. And it turns out like that's what she's like, oh, it's not a flask. You know, it's potentially the ring. But like there's booze on board, right? So then why are we concerned about him having a flask? And also I think that was a a classism thing, right? Where we get the idea that like he's very rich and maybe she didn't come from wealth where it's like you would pack some booze maybe in your jacket pocket going to an event versus like if you're rich, you just assume like these type of events will always have alcohol, right? So there's just a real out of syncness. And so I'm just so curious about like why this character ended up with this guy in the first place if they're so out of sync and it seems like he doesn't even take her job very seriously so I don't know I mean 
In terms of places to start, yes, this is an interesting point in this character's life. It's a proposal that she doesn't want, and she literally jumps out of a boat and swims through the Hudson to to escape it. But I'm not a huge fan of women being with male characters who aren't good for them because it's very obvious that they're not going to end up together. And so this is a theme. You will see it in the next query letter in the next sample pages as well of opening books and starting scenes with men who male characters who aren't going to kind of make it the rest of the book. So why are we starting in a place that is so out of balance and the tension really isn't there for me because we know that these two aren't going to end up together. So I'm just not a fan of, of starting with men that suck. I'm just not a fan. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Before we go to the next one, I just want to give some line level edit advice over here. So, so we've got a line, I watch him walk away and greet Percy, his boss on the other side of the boat. Go through your manuscript, look for phrases like I watch, I hear, I feel. The very fact that the character is telling us that he's walking away means that she is watching him. So we don't need those kinds of phrases. We could just say he walks away to greet Percy, his boss. Okay, so so do searches on your manuscripts for those kinds of words that don't need to be there. We have, I glanced down over the railing of the boat. The water is calm, only a few small waves lapping the bottom of the boat about 20 feet below. So in two sentences, we have a repetition of, of the boat, of the boat. So we don't really need that because we already know that the waves will be lapping the boat. So this is where reading aloud might help you realize where this repetition comes in. And then we have here as well, his smile widens, misinterpreting my emotion, and I shake my head. Tears sting my eyes. My breath is coming so fast I'm dizzy. I shake my head again, eyes squeezed shut. So we've got the repetition here of eyes, but again, think about redundancy. Tears aren't going to sting your elbow or your ankle. Tears sting your eyes because that's where they come out through. So you can just say, tears sting, my breath is coming so fast, I'm dizzy. So in all of your manuscripts, when you are polishing at a line level, look out for those kinds of redundancies. All right, Cece, will you read us the next query letter? Dear Cece, Carly and Bianca, the shit no one tells you about writing has been my North Star as I continue my journey to becoming an author. My deepest thanks for your dedication to helping aspiring writers fulfill their dreams. I am querying my upmarket women's fiction novel, Redacted, complete at 76,000 words. Part exploration of complex familial relationships and part love letter to Italy, this novel can be described as Mary Beth Keene's Ask Again Yes meets Rebecca Searle's One Italian Summer. Lena Tirano, 26, is trapped on the gray space between loving and hating her dying father. She's left with one chance to mend their relationship, shred apart by his destructive alcoholism. When she learns Rocco Toronto is refusing life-saving liver disease treatment. Looking for a distraction from her crumbling career and failing love life, Lena reluctantly agrees to escort Rocco to his native Italy for one last summer. They traverse the rugged Italian countryside where Lena searches for remnants of the father she once adored, now hidden behind silence and short tempers. But patience for her father's callousness runs thin, and Lena clashes with her zealous aunt, who implores her to forgive Rocco's tumultuous past. Instead, 
Lena drifts even further from reconciliation when she kindles a romance with the local baker. She is swept away by summer love and the magic of southern Italy until she is catapulted into a world haunted by her father's guilt and grief over a deadly accident. Now armed with the secret to her father's undoing, Lena is compelled to help him seek redemption and reignite his willingness to live. But this means leaving Italy and her new love behind. Grappling between newfound devotion to her father and holding on to the love of her life, Lena must choose which heartbreak she's willing to endure. Lena's journey was inspired by my Italian-American roots and my own imperfect relationship with my father when I'm not writing, hiking with my husband and dog, or convincing my Italian grandmother that I like her food. I'm just full. I work as an elementary school teacher. I've had a short story published in Jane Morris's What It's Really Like, and I'm a member of WFWA. I would love to send my full manuscript at your request. Thank you for your time and consideration. Warmest regards, Redacted. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what's your take on that? All right. So this one clocks in at 382 words. I just kind of want to make a note that the love letter line sounds a little bit literary, but I really do think the the comps and the vibe check there is is on point. I think the main thing that came across for me is that the body paragraph reads very synopsis-like. For an example, right after the main character's name, like bracket 26, so we get their age. That's the type of thing that we don't need in a query letter, but is very common in a synopsis. Another thing is the way that the dad is introduced. It says, like, when she learns, Rocco Torano says the full name. Doesn't say that it's the father at any point. We just know that there is a dying father, and then we meet. Rocco Torano. So that stood out to me a little bit as a little bit confusing and, and a bit more kind of synopsis-like. That was worded a little bit strangely to me. Another thing that I'm really curious about is how ill he is. So if he refuses this life-saving liver disease treatment, that's quite serious. It sounds like he's very ill. And so how is he kind of traversing the Italian countryside if he's very ill? Does she have to caretake for him? And if she does, that's a really intimate kind of relationship to have with somebody if he is really ill and she kind of has to play nurse to her own father. So I think that is kind of a point of information for me that I'd like to know a little bit more about how dire the health situation is, because that also increases the stakes if we feel like, again, this is the end, right? But there's a it's a really plot-heavy query letter and I really like a plot heavy query letter. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Cece? So let's think about the three questions that an author has to ask themselves when they're writing their plot paragraph. Question number one, what compels my protagonist to go on their hero's journey? Question number two, how do things get complicated? Even more complicated, maybe. And question number three, what is a major dramatic question? What's at stake? Like what big decision? Will they or won't they? Whatever the MDQ is. Question number one here, remember when I said in the previous critique that we kind of have a similarity going on? So question number one, unlike the previous query letter, I am wondering what is compelling her to go on this journey? So we have the line, looking for a distraction from her crumbling career and failing love life. Lena agrees to escort. In general, looking for a distraction, it's just not the most compelling motivation to make your protagonist go on that journey. It sounds passive. It sounds like, well, she could have gone, could have not gone. And that is, makes it really hard for us to get invested in the story. I get what complicates things. So I totally get that. But then the third question, this means leaving Italy and her new love behind. I am picturing this new baker person as a very hot, interesting, intelligent, cerebral baker. Cool, I'm, I'm so glad that she found him. But can't he wait for her? 
you know, like it just, I don't understand how that's super compelling. Like he could wait for her. He could go with her potentially and take time off at the bakery. So I talk to a lot of authors about their query letters and there's always a really good reason. Whenever I talk to them and I point things like this out, they go, oh, actually, so the reason why he can't go with her is because, you know, that secret, the, 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 the car accident, her dad killed his mom in that car accident. So the second he finds out, he's going to leave her. Oh, gotcha. So then all you need is a line that says, if the baker finds out, their relationship will be over because the secret has to do with his life. Not like that, better. But we do need something to connect those things because otherwise the stakes seem internal. And I get that it's literary because you did comp this to ask again, yes, but you still want to really, really up those stakes and make the reader go, oh my gosh, now I'm on tenterhooks. I really, really need to know. I'm also super looking forward to hearing more about your Italian grandmother's cooking because I'm never full with pasta. So I, I can be a surrogate granddaughter for her, just saying. Awesome, Cece. Before we move on to the opening pages, I'd just like to say that something that I've gone over in my webinar that I did on the 10 biggest mistakes that authors make, the first mistake is starting with the, there I was minding my own business when X happened. The problem with this kind of opening is it doesn't give the character agency. It doesn't give them something that they want, that they a goal that they're pursuing, and therefore it doesn't create any kind of stakes. You want to begin with your character wanting something desperately, and then perhaps X happening is an obstacle. This is something that's come up that's stopping them from getting what they want, as opposed to they were just coasting along, they didn't want anything, they didn't need anything, and now they're reacting to something that happens. Okay. All right. Carly? Yeah, I wanted to add, because I've talked on the podcast before about the the women's fiction market being a little bit soft, and that this is a kind of an example of when we fall into these traps of living a normal life, and then, you know, all of a sudden something comes in and upends us. That's kind of an example of that, right? Where it's really hard for those types of books to be competing against more high concept hooks from more upmarket projects. So that is an example of when we talk about kind of soft women's fiction type of plots, that's kind of an example of that. Right. And it's something that could be quite easy to fix. Say to yourself at that moment, when we meet your character for the first time, what is it that they desperately want? And how is this phone call that suddenly arrives? How's that upending what they want? How is that throwing a spanner in the works for them? And so it becomes this obstacle that needs to be overcome because stakes are always tied to what the character wants. And if the character doesn't want anything, then it doesn't matter that they're not going to get anything. So where are the stakes? Okay, what was in those opening pages? So our protagonist is with her boyfriend, Mark, and they're on vacation and they just finished dinner and they're walking back to the hotel and her phone has been ringing, but she's been ignoring her phone. And her boyfriend asks her, don't you think you should get that? But she doesn't. And when they get to the hotel, a phone rings again, but this time it's his phone. And after he answers, it's clear that it's her sister calling him. So he hands the phone over to her and her sister tells her that their dad is in the hospital and that she should come home, not necessarily tonight, but the next day. The complication is related to his liver, which is unsurprising, but the character is still devastated. And when she tells her boyfriend that they have to go back, he's not too happy about it because they're on vacation and there's a non-refundable situation. And when they're already mid-flight on the plane on the way home, he tells her that she should consider giving her father an ultimatum. And she goes, look, is this because of the hotel? Because if it is, like, I'll pay you back. I'll just pay for it. And yeah, and that's what happens. Awesome, Cece. Okay, Carly, what was your take on that? 
I found these pages incredibly strong. I really, really enjoyed them. We have kind of this opening where they're sitting on the California coast. Obviously, in comparison to to Italy, there's kind of some linkage here. I actually like this. I was kind of humming and hawing about it. I was like, oh, is that too on the nose to kind of make that comparison? But I liked it. I think it works with the vibe of the book and the style and and the comps and, and everything. So I do like that we have that kind of Italy comparison there. There's some really, really great lines. I really liked the line here that says, it had been the perfect evening, interrupted only by the faint chimes of my cell phone, sunken somewhere in the depths of my bag. Because we're talking so much about the water, and being on the ocean. I really liked the use of sunken. I thought that was a really subtle way just to kind of draw together that that idea and the visuals and the wording around water and sunken treasure or something like that. I thought that was great. I also really like when opening pages revolve around movement. So the movement here is they're walking from the restaurant back to the hotel and they're kind of interacting. And then there's even movement within the actual hotel room itself. So the boyfriend is going to the mini bar, getting some snacks out of the bar fridge and and they're kind of interacting while they do it. There's just so much to learn about people through this movement. It's just so much better than having two characters sitting on the hotel bed. I think that's just so much better. I do want to reiterate that this is another example of a dude that sucks because I mean, this is on purpose, right? Like he's coming off as a jerk on purpose. And so if we want to be very obvious that this guy is not going to make it in terms of a relationship with her, that she's going to break up with him and and she's going to kind of move on. We get it, right? We get it. So if if we want some tension to say like, are these two characters going to be together? Or is he going to support her through this traumatizing thing of her dad being very ill? Is there sympathy here? Like right away, he's jumping to like, oh, I hope we can get our money back. You need to set this ultimatum with your dad. Like how callous and unkind is this guy? And so again, the similarities between this and the other sample pages was just that clearly both of these authors are trying to set up that the man that they're currently with is not the man of their dreams. And they are therefore going to go off on a journey to meet the man of their dreams. But do you kind of see the similarities between these and how obvious it is that these guys are not the right guys for them? And it's just something that, yeah, I don't know, came to my attention with both of them. Thank you, Carly. Cece, your take on that. First of all, the man sucks. And I'm so sad we don't sell merch anymore for only one reason. I wanted men who suck, like maybe like a scale on a mug, like how much does your man suck? And people could like paint the mug. I don't know. This is funny. So yes, dude sucks. The reason why this is complicated for me is for all the reasons Carly mentioned, and also because it makes her seem unintelligent. Why are you with the dude who sucks? Your protagonist must be intelligent. No one's intelligent with all the things. No one has all the intelligences, of course. But I need to understand their choices. I need to. And there has to be a reason. And every person on earth has dated somebody who they should not have dated. So it's not to say that that makes them unintelligent, but they've had reasons. And through interiority, we have to know. Interiority is really important. There's a reason why I talk about it all the time, you know, and speaking of interiority, one of the golden rules I teach in my ready interiority class is there's a knock on the door. Your protagonist should have theories on who's on the other side. Now, in this case, we're not talking about a knock on the door. We're talking about a phone call, but there's clear mention that her phone kept ringing and she deliberately ignored it. Now, why is she doing that is important, but also who she thinks is on the other end of the line is really important too. 
Does she think it's her annoying boss who has no boundaries and so she's not going to give him the satisfaction of picking up her phone? Does she think it's telemarketers because she gets a lot of robocalls? Like, what is the reason that's important to me? And we need to see those theories. Same thing with her dialogue with her sister and her dialogue with her boyfriend. One of the key components of writing interiority is not just leaving things unsaid in dialogue, and we only know what's being left unsaid according to the protagonist, because we're in their mind, but also what is the protagonist projecting? What is the protagonist interpreting in the other person's behavior? So when her boyfriend says, don't you think you should get that? Is she hearing his tone like, don't you think you should get that? Like critical? Or is she hearing his tone like, don't you think you should get that? Like a little bit of concerned, maybe patronizing, maybe condescending. And what is she, what is she reading into that? Is, is for example, because he's such a workaholic that's established, is this a recurring argument they have? Does he maybe think she is not hardworking enough? Is he the type of person who says, does it matter if you're on vacation? Like, you know, you're always working. You always have to have your phone. Like what, like what dynamics are at play here? I really wanted to know. And it's so important because writing relationships is a key element to good storytelling. I also really wanted to know about her dynamic with her sister. So when she, she asks her sister if she should fly home? Is this something that she's used to doing because maybe she's the youngest and she looks to her eldest sister for reassurance? Or maybe it's like weird for her, like topsy-turvy world because she's used to being the one in charge because she's the eldest or maybe has nothing to do with the birth order. Um, I really wanted to know. And I, I want to be clear, I'm having all these questions about these pages because they're so good, because they're so strong. Clearly, this protagonist is going to go on a really interesting journey and it's going to be complicated, filled with familial drama, which is catnip to me. And I wanted to know more. And the fact that I want to know more is always a good sign. So thank you so much for sharing. Awesome, Cece and Carly. Yeah, when it comes to the bad dudes straight out the gate in the first pages, I think that as authors, we're missing a trick there. Because if the dude was less bad, it can create more inner struggle. And it might create an opportunity down the line where he might suddenly pop up again and go, I know I was an asshole and I'm sorry about that and I strive to do better. And now she has another love interest. So that could down the line give another obstacle or more conflict in the story that you're able to use. But if he's such a bad dude from the opening pages, you can't even bring him back later to try and redeem himself or to throw a span in the works of her new love because he's just so damn awful. So that's something to, to keep in mind there as well okay that's it for today's queries we're now going to today's guest hey it's Cece, and i have exciting news my webinars on writing emotion writing tension writing interiority and writing a memoir are all available for purchase on my website head over to cecilialira.com and click on webinars that's c-e-c-i-l-i-a-l-y-r-a.com after checking out You'll be able to watch the webinar you bought as many times as you'd like for a full year. And yes, the PDF of the slides are included. I hope you enjoy. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today we have Rebecca Mackay on the podcast to promote her new book. I have some questions for you and it's really, really good. Here's a little bit about it. A successful film professor and podcaster, Bodie Kane, is content to forget her past, the family tragedy that marred her adolescence, her four largely miserable years at a New Hampshire boarding school, and her classmate, Talia Keith, who was tragically murdered in the spring of their senior year in 1995. Through the circumstances surrounding Talia's death and the conviction of the school's athletic trainer, Omar Evans, are the subject of the intense fascination online Bodhi prefers and needs to let sleeping dogs lie. But when the Granby School invites her back to teach a two-week course, Bodhi finds herself inexorably drawn to the case and its increasingly apparent flaws. In their rush to convict Omar, did the school and the police overlook other suspects? Is the real killer still out there? As she falls down the very rabbit hole she was so determined to avoid, Bodhi begins to wonder 
And she wasn't as much of an outsider at Granby as she thought, if perhaps back in 1995, she knew something that might have held the key to solving the case. One of the most acclaimed contemporary American writers, Rebecca Mackay, reinvents herself with each of the brilliant works of fiction, both a transfixing mystery and deeply felt examination of one woman's reckoning with her past. I have some questions for you as her finest achievement yet, and we're so glad to have her on the podcast. Hi, Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. Oh, we're so glad that you're here. It's so nice to have you. Thank you. you. Really appreciate it. I've listened to this podcast before. Not not like every episode or anything, but I've totally listened to it. And I have a lot of my students listen. So it makes me really happy to do it. Oh, well, we're so glad you're here. I want to jump right into it because I know you have a very busy press day for your very wonderful, wonderful book. So I'm going to jump right into my questions. So, so my first question is, Obviously, it's very meta that we are on a podcast talking about a book that has a podcast host character. <laughs> Bodie is also teaching the Granby students about how to make a podcast in the book. So what is it about the podcast world or the method of storytelling or kind of that episodic sequence that was really appealing to you to kind of create in a fictional world because it holds a mirror up to society? And I'm just so curious about your thought process on that. Yeah, there have been a, a bunch more books that involve podcasting since I started writing it, which was like five years ago. It's not like I was trying to write the the first one ever or anything, but like I, you know, I hadn't read about it before. And podcasts have become a huge part of our lives. Many of us, me definitely. Like I don't know how I ever folded laundry in the past. How did that work? I don't know. It's also this is a book that while it is about fictional crime, not true crime, it concerns the phenomenon of true crime. And true crime is as old as humans. Like they literally sold souvenirs outside the Lindbergh baby kidnapping trial in the 20s, right? This is nothing new. But the podcast is a medium that has really fit true crime, that intimacy, the the episodic thing or the capsule kind of episode thing. So it seems to make sense that if I'm talking about a murder that absolutely everybody, that has captured the public imagination, for better or worse, mostly worse, that I'm going to talk about Reddit, I'm going to talk about YouTube, I'm going to talk about podcasting, I'm going to talk about Twitter. And in order to write a realist novel, those are the things that would be going on. So like continuing on the internet theme. So one of my favorite lines is when Bodhi's friend Fran says, stay off the internet where everyone's nuts. And like, obviously that's <laughs> really, really good advice, but nobody actually takes that advice. So we know that so much good comes from communicating on it. Obviously like the internet has changed our lives, but these Twitter storms that Bodhi finds herself in can really obviously derail people. So I kind of have a two-part question, which is what's your own relationship like with the internet? And then the second part <laughs> is how do you choose to kind of incorporate the texting and the social media in contemporary fiction because so many writers struggle with that right because it complicates yes. their plots and it makes things harder to create suspenseful moments but you tackle it head on right with the podcasting and texting yeah yeah I mean my relationship I'm of the exact generation where I got my first email account on my first day of college and then Google was suddenly there like a year out of like kind of like right when I graduated college, like it was this very specific, like lined up with my own life in a very kind of lockstep way. Interestingly, I don't know what they would call, you know, they talk about digital natives and digital immigrants. I don't know what I am then. It's like, well, I came of age with the internet. Maybe I am the internet. <laughs> I don't know, but I do. I am as an author. I am very much online. I'm on social media. I have a sub stack. I do, I do all this stuff. That is, it suits my personality. I'm, I am an extrovert. So when I'm home 
alone all day writing to be able to hop on Twitter and just make a joke, tell people what I just learned or learn something from someone else or whatever is great. It feeds me in an interesting way. It definitely has its downsides, of course, as well. I think that Twitter in particular is like, it feels sometimes, you know, like those kids on the playground who would be like, they'd try to trick you and like whatever you said was wrong. They'd be like, do you love your mom? And if you said yes, they're like, oh my God, she's in love with her mom. And if you said no, they're like, you don't love your mom. <laughs> you know, um, it feels like that kid, you know, like you say one sentence and it's like, wait a second, are you saying? <laughs> Everybody's um, always after you. They want to trip you up. They want you to say the yes, wrong thing. Yeah, totally. Right. So it's like, you you just gotta like plow through those people and whatever, but I've made amazing connections online with other writers, with friends, with readers in my own life, it has been mostly a source for good. And then, you know, incorporating it into fiction, if you want to write a realist novel set now, it's probably going to be there or you're going to have to explain why it's not, right? Like this character just is not online and that's just who they are. Or wow, the electricity is out and the internet's down <laughs> for the whole novel. It does change plots, right? Like there's this joke that like you can basically ruin any Seinfeld episode if you give them a cell phone in Google like where'd I park my car oh right here what's her name again oh Google her <laughs> like it's just it's just done but it opens up possibilities I have plot lines in this book that for one thing wouldn't have made any sense 30 years ago but just wouldn't have been possible without Twitter the internet mob the YouTube people who take something and adopt it and make it their own they're interesting plot lines to work with and I also have texting, you know, because she's back on campus and she's working with these young kids who are teenagers in 2018 and they are communicating by text sometimes. And it's, it's fun. I, I'm not going to like have replicated with like bubbles of text on the page or anything, but as a line of dialogue, that's actually a text. Yeah. Yeah, I think you did a great job. So I want to talk about the teenagers. They were so interesting to me. So the way that you portray them, not only like at Granby as the students, but also Bodhi in the past. And so obviously she's teaching these students, as we talked about, they are so present and smart and evolved. And they knew like they know the value of the Internet and its power to kind of spread the word. So I'm really curious about what you were trying to say about the next generation of content creators and, and what they were capable of or how you feel like teens have evolved. Yeah. Right. I mean, just, yeah, the contrast between the teenagers that she remembers from graduating high school in 1995 and these kids who are probably class of 2018 and 2019. Of course, there's a lot of similarities. They're, they're adolescents. They're going through the same stuff. But the way they talk, the way that they move through the world is profoundly different. Partly their ability, their empowerment in calling out things that upset them. That is huge. Partly their self-consciousness about who they might offend, the way they might come off. That's, you know, it's a different kind of self-consciousness than Bodhi's generation. They still are just working it out. They're not that, you know, it's not like, oh, all hail these, this, uh, you know, brave new world, these wonderful people. But they also, they can create content. They have a voice in a way that her generation did not. They are all starting their own little podcasts. And early on in the book, she keeps thinking to herself, well, this is only for this group. This is only for this small circle of people. But she also knows, and this is borne out, that something like this can get out in the world. What used to be a class project could now be seen by millions and millions of people. And for someone who felt quite voiceless in high school, 
I think there's something cathartic for her about being part of these teenagers' lives when they have this incredibly loud voice and they can talk about things that that come up, including things that have been bothering her for almost 30 years. So I want to talk about the chapter lengths, which I thought was so interesting, right? Like stylistically, some are longer, some are shortest. I think I counted the shortest one was like 10 words long. So talk to me a bit about how you decided to kind of vary up that that structure. Yeah, I love chapters as units. There's nothing like, I guess sometimes have students ask me, they're like, well, how? what exactly are the rules of chapters? And you're like, <laughs> that there, there are zero, just, just have fun. I don't know if, I think it's Alice Through the Looking Glass, Lewis Carroll, as a kid, my mind was blown. There's like a three-word chapter or a two-word chapter in there towards the end. A, at least, let's just say a one-sentence chapter. I was like, I appalled and impressed and like so gobsmacked that he could do that. And I think there's something that I've carried with me from that about like, you know what? When, if you want like a two-word chapter that's like a punch to the solar plexus, that's a possibility. I originally wanted lots and lots and lots of really short chapters and then that didn't quite work out. So yeah, it's kind of just the grab bag. Like, you don't know, are you in for a little thing? Are you in for a long thing? Depends how tired you are. You gonna stay up till two? Are you gonna, you know, and then you look and it's a long chapter, go to bed. But if there's this little popcorn kind of chapter coming up next, maybe you wanna stay up another minute. If it's form following function, what belongs together, what needs to get separated out. And then I'm just not going to worry about how long they are. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. It was so refreshing and just kind of, to me, it also spoke to the kind of the way that you captured media in the book, right? It's like, it's it's like, it's social media, it's podcasting, right? Like our minds are going in all these different directions. And so it's like, you have the longer chapters and the shorter chapters. It kind of was all in line, I think, with what I imagine your point of view to be there. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I have a question about the divorce kind of, Bodie, mm. Bodie and Jerome's relationship. So I really liked this idea of like their modern divorce because they have the parents kind of like bird nesting, I think is what it's called when they kind of go in and mm-hmm. out of taking care of the kids. So you also have multiple times in the book when somebody asks Bodie, like, who is watching the kids when you're here? Um, <laughs> and so there's obviously this repetition that you're trying to kind of underscore this idea of like how absurd it is that we expect mothers to always be the ones taking care of the kids. Was there anything that you were trying to say about modern marriage or modern <laughs> divorce or modern motherhood um, in this book? I mean, I think I was trying, it's not, it's not like a thesis statement, certainly, right? But I wanted to just unapologetically have this woman who is a mother and that is just not part of the book. Like we barely meet her kids. She's on the road. She lives in LA, but this book takes place in New Hampshire in two different times. She's, she's away from her kids and it's fine and it's no big deal she's divorced and it's not upending her life. And like, that's, those are the people I know. (laughs) Those are the, that's, that's real. And I think we, as authors, just out of fear of being judged, honestly, by other women feel like bending over backwards to just make sure that someone is a good mother. And and she is a good mother. She's just not with her kids and you can't, you're just going to have to deal with it. But like, and then the, the, where, who's watching your kids thing. I mean, that is real. The, The most dramatic time this happened for me was I was on right before the great believers came out I was on a pre-publication tour there were four authors two men two women all of us had kids and one of these guys had five kids and every so basically every night we're all together we're in a different city having a cocktail party with booksellers and librarians and journalists and whatever and every single night 
me and this other woman, we would get, who's watching your kids? And these guys, one of whom, like he had a newborn or something at home. The other one had the five kids. They got nothing. And we start comparing notes. And it's like, what is this? What is this? And it's it's usually, the weird part, it's usually from other women, usually a generation or two off. And I think that there's... I think there there is implicit judgment in it because you can't, you know, you get asked that three times in an hour at a cocktail party and you're like, I guess I'm supposed to feel guilty. Okay, fine. Like, but I think it's a little bit of like, I wouldn't have been allowed to do this. Why are you allowed to do this? Or, mm -hmm. and, or mm -hmm. like we, there's this whole psychological thing. We judge kids to be in more danger when we are already morally judging their parents. Mm, interesting. Um, and there's this like there's just it's just basically anti-feminist like oh my god you're away from home you shouldn't be this makes me uncomfortable you you are of childbearing age you should be with your children and, and it comes out they don't know what why they're asking it it just mm -hmm. comes out as pleasant cocktail party chatter but then it's like well the litmus test is this other woman and i this was rosie walsh the british novelist who had a had a you know baby at home Rosie Walsh and I have been asked this question now 40 times collectively in the past five days. And these two dudes have been asked zero times. So what's up with that? Absolutely. You know? See, that's why I love that it was such a like C plot, D plot thing, right? It's like, the, it is a fact that she is a mother and yet we don't mm -hmm. have to draw attention to it. So I loved yeah. it. That was, that was great. Yeah. Good, um, good. Yeah. So I want to talk about like dark academia. I don't know if you've heard of this theme. Kind oh, of I have. Yes. yes. <laughs> and so obviously I was thinking about it when I was reading your book. So that got me thinking about kind of the boarding school setting, obviously like opposed to you setting this at like a day school. So what about the boarding school setting really, really worked for you or spoke to you here? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I live on campus at a boarding school because you know no one can see this, but I'm going to show you because we're in my office. So this is my office. That is the door to a dorm of 40 teenage girls. So my husband teaches here. I don't, I got nothing to do with any of this. Like my daughter's a freshman. That's the only thing now, but they, they like, they used to be our babysitters. But other than that, it's not the facts of life. I don't deal with them, except that I hear them out my office door, like shrieking once in a while. So I, this is a world I know. It's a world I know very, very well. I think it's often really misrepresented. And part of it is a bit of a chip on my shoulder of like, what are you guys talking about? That's not what it's like. You're talking about the 1950s. You're not talking about right now. Or why is it fucking always October? And why are the leaves always orange every time a boarding school comes up uh, in a movie or a TV show? I swear to God, the seasons change even at a boarding school. So it's a little bit of like, let me, let me set the record straight. It's also, yeah. I do think as a place, what's evocative, and I'm sure why you know other people are drawn to it too, it's a very permanent, storied, historic place, right? These old buildings. And then this really transitory population. Like you're there for four years at most, but the most vulnerable years of your life. Different from college. College, you are a lot more of an adult. A lot happens, right, in that, in that time. But ages, God, 14 to 18, you are in formation. And this is, you have they do the psychological studies, like you have significantly more memories from that time in your life than any other time, like between 13 and 18, whatever it is, right? Mm. But you're this fleeting population. You're just a speck passing through from the perspective of this place. But from your perspective, this is where you were formed. There's there's just something in that. And then also, of course, that hot house, like we're all trapped together alone in the woods for four years. <laughs> like what could be better for plot? 
Yeah, such a good pressure cooker. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love the scene. Speaking about the, the the seasons changing at the boarding school, I love the scene when it was just like mucky weather where mm-hmm. it's like there's just puddles everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I love that. It was very visceral. Okay, so another line I really liked from the book was, it was like seeing someone hanged for stealing gum when down the street someone else was robbing a bank. And you were kind of talking about trauma kind of in relation to each other. So I kind of, obviously without getting into spoilers, because I'm trying to cover questions in the first half of the book and not the second, because I want everybody to go read it. Um, but tell me like what you're trying to say about degrees of trauma and like, are there rules around who is allowed to be traumatized? And, right. like, maybe what social media's role is in all of this? Yeah, basically... My job as an author is to take questions I already have and then complicate them further. Um, And I think, you know, I I started this book in 2019. I'm writing mostly about 2018, which is Me Too, which is, you know, a part of this book, was was really fresh. And this was the, that initial wave of Me Too was like, oh my God, Harvey Weinstein and, you know, the like, the big things. But it was also people on Twitter and elsewhere going it was the little things too it was the thousand little cuts it was like this kid in my high school or this guy on my first job and it they didn't assault me but but it upset me it bothered me I would take a different hallway or I quit that job and I think it made a lot of us including me look back on adolescence and particularly with that lens and then we get into the these really borderline cases like these Aziz Ansari story, things like that, where it's like, wait a second, I'm not sure, I don't know if that's the same thing. (laughs) And you're kind of like, I don't want to say this online and get attacked, but like, I'm going to DM people. And this is happening too in the literary world. It's happening in the art world where there are extreme cases. And then there are these borderline things, or even things where it's like, this person is saying that this individual should be canceled. And I don't think they did anything wrong from if, even if I believe every word this person is saying, yeah, that sounds like a shitty relationship. It doesn't sound like the kind of thing you need to take public and try to, you know, but, but there, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about any one individual thing there. That's the kind of stuff that happened. And the conversations were happening often in DMS rather than publicly or over drinks. Right. So I'm kind of rambling about this because it is complicated. I just wanted to stick that all in there. We have these questions of real trauma. You know, her looking back, someone was murdered or teachers that might have been sleeping with students. We also have things that are maybe on that same spectrum, but to her, to to this character, do not cross that line, but to others do cross that line. The things she's looking back on as being egregious, maybe to someone else wouldn't have been. And I want those contrasts in there. I want that complication. I want that mess because that's what it is. It is, it is messy. It's not black and white. Twitter leads us to take a side and to pick the black and white thinking. And what a novel can do that is really hard to do in a few words at a time is a novel can get into the gray area. And a novel can contradict itself and it can disagree with itself and it can get into the mess. Well, that seems like the perfect place to end our wonderful interview because yes, life is messy and we love we love books that, that tackle all of the very serious subject matter. So I love this book so much. I kept all the questions, as I said, to the first half because I want everybody to read the book. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I just want to thank Rebecca for joining us on our podcast today. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. 
And now we have an audio excerpt courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio from I Have Some Questions For You by Rebecca Mackay, read by Julia Whelan and J.D. Jackson. I first watched the video in 2016. I was in bed on my laptop with headphones, worried Jerome would wake up and I'd have to explain. Down the hall, my children slept. I could have gone and checked on them, felt their warm cheeks and hot breath. I could have smelled my daughter's hair, and maybe the scent of damp lavender and a toddler's scalp would have been enough to send me to sleep. But a friend I hadn't seen in 20 years had just sent me the link, and so I clicked. Lerner and Lowe's Camelot. I was both stage manager and tech director. One fixed camera, too close to the orchestra, too far from the unmiked adolescent singers, 1995 VHS quality, some member of the AV club behind the lens. And my God, we knew we weren't great, but we weren't even as good as we thought we were. Whoever uploaded it two decades later, whoever added the notes below with the exact time markers for when Thalia Keith shows up, had also posted the list of cast and crew. Beth Dougherty as a petite Guinevere, Sakina John glowing as Morgan Le Fay with a crown of gold spikes atop her cornrows, Mike Stiles, beautiful and embarrassed as King Arthur. My name is misspelled, but it's there too. The curtain call is the last shot where you clearly see Thalia, her dark curls distinguishing her from the washed-out mass. Then, most everyone stays on stage to sing Happy Birthday to Mrs. Ross, our director, to pull her up from the front row where she sat every night jotting notes. She's so young, something I hadn't registered then. A few kids exit, return in confusion, Orchestra members hop on stage to sing. Mrs. Ross's husband springs from the audience with flowers. The crew comes on in black shirts and black jeans. I don't appear. I assume I stayed up in the box. It would have been like me to sit it out. Including the regrouping and singing, the birthday business lasts 52 seconds, during which you never see Thalia clearly. In the comments, someone had zoomed in on a bit of green dress at one side of the frame, posted side-by-side -side photos of that smear of color and the dress Thalia wore, first covered in gauze as Nimue, the enchantress, the lady of the lake, and then ungauzed with a simple headdress as Lady Anne. But there were several green dresses. My friend Carlotta's was one. There's a chance that, by then, Thalia was gone. Most of the discussion below the video focused on timing. The show was set to begin at 7 o'clock, but we likely started our mercifully abridged version five minutes late, maybe more. The tape omitted intermission, and there was speculation on how long the intermission of a high school musical would last. Depending on what you believe about these two variables, the show ended sometime between 8.45 and 9.15. I should have known. Once, there would have been a binder with my meticulous notes. But no one ever asked for it. The window the medical examiner allowed for Thalia's time of death was 8 p.m. to midnight, with the beginning of the slot curtailed by the musical, the reason the show's exact end time had become the subject of infinite fascination online. I came here from YouTube, one commenter had written in 2015, linking to a separate video, Watch this. It proves they bungled the case. 
The timeline makes no sense. Someone else wrote, Wrong guy in prison because of racist cops in school's pocket. And below that, Welcome to Tinfoil Hat Central. Focus your energies on an actual unsolved case. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. 
Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.